Hi, this is Mark Rabin. Before the episode, let me quickly tell you about my new book. It's titled Measures of Success. It's a book that will help you react less to your performance metrics, every up and down in those. It'll help you lead better. It'll help you improve more. So you can learn more about the book by going to www.measuresofsuccessbook.com or you can search Amazon. It's available as a print book, a Kindle book. It's available through Apple Books. I hope you'll check it out. Hi, this is Mark Raven. If you like this podcast, you might realize I have a blog, leanblog.org. Did you also know that I have another podcast called Lean Blog Audio? And there I basically, occasionally, or as often as I can, I read audiobook style versions of blog posts. So you can go to leanblog.org slash audio or search in your favorite podcast place for Lean Blog Audio. I hope that'll give you something else uh, that's food for thought, something else to help you in your lean journey. Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Raven. This is episode 214 of the podcast for February 2nd, 2015. Today's guest is Michael Ballet. He's the author of uh, many novels, uh, three of them about lean management, published by the Lean Enterprise Institute. Those books are The Gold Mine, The Lean Manager, and Lead with Respect. So he joins us for this episode from Paris. Uh, Michael and his father, Freddie, have collaborated on these books. Um, they, they've learned directly about as directly from Toyota as anybody could. Um, Freddie was the CEO of a French auto supplier, and they received coaching and education uh, from the Toyota supplier folks. Uh, I also um, really recommend Michael does a lot of nonfiction writing. He writes the Gemba Coach column um, at lean.org, the Lean Enterprise Institute. And he also um, founded and runs uh, the website theleanedge.org, where I'm also a contributor. Uh, it's first time on the podcast. Um, he did do a four-part written Q&A for the blog back in 2009. And if you want to see links to that or, or to his books or anything about Michael and his website, you can go to leanblog.org slash 214. And in case you missed it in the last episode, I've also got a new podcast series where I basically do audiobook versions of some of my blog posts. If you have more time and you like to listen instead of um, reading, I'd invite you to check that out. It's called Lean Blog Audio. You can find it through iTunes and Stitcher, and you can also go to leanblog.org slash audio. It's a separate feed. Uh, if you're not interested in it, I, I won't uh, bother you with that anymore, but I've um, gotten some nice feedback about this being a good option for people to uh, further kind of engage and think about lean during your commutes or your workouts or wherever you listen to these. So if you have any um, feedback or ideas about potential guests, um, you can contact me, mark at leanblog.org. I'm going to be more active here on the podcast with a bunch of interviews, five or six interviews lined up over the next month that I'll publish out every couple of weeks. So as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for taking time to enjoy the podcasts. Michael, hi. It's so great to finally have you as a guest on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, hi, Mark. I, I, don't, I can't believe we haven't done this before. I mean, we've talked so much over the years. It's, uh... Yeah, well, I'm glad we can finally talk about uh, your, your work and your books and your new book, Lead with Respect. Um, I'm sure a lot of the listeners know who you are, but um, if you can give us kind of the brief background about your career. I think it's an interesting story how you got involved with Lean and, and the Toyota production system, if you can tell us a little bit about that. 
Well, I was. Very, it turned out. It turned out I was very lucky with hindsight because I, I was. Uh, I was doing my PhD. I was do, doing research for my dissertation at about a time that uh, my father had been chosen by Toyota as a as a key supplier, and uh, uh, this was the early '90s. And Toyota was trying to develop uh, suppliers that they did in Japan, which is to go through to teach uh, TPS to the top leadership. And um, so my father had the opportunity to be coached by uh, a sensei who had worked uh, closely with Ono and also to see the very beginning of the system when you set up when there's nothing. I was doing my PhD at the time, and uh, as I tell many people, I, I was looking for, for a research place where I could see people looking at the same object with uh, different opinions and different perspectives, more to, more to the point that people always have different opinions but they mostly share perspective. And I mentioned this to my dad who said, uh, why don't you go and get an honest job? And, <laughs> and uh, you know, what's this business about being a sociologist? And, and then, but he said, but if you're really interested, uh, why don't you go and see what uh, Toyota is doing with us in the factory? And I went in the factory, me, uh, are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, eventually I went there and I completely uh, fell off my chair because of what I saw. It was, it, it, it it didn't fit any of our uh, managerial models, and yet the the transformation was incredible. And uh, it turned out with hindsight that this was a very unique moment um, because we could see uh, really old-style TPS being, being demonstrated uh, at a time where they really try hard to develop uh, their European suppliers they were setting up in Europe. Uh, they more or less gave up after that, and uh, the whole supplier development shifted uh, to purchasing, and and it was it became something very different. Now, what what do you mean by old style TPS? Um, oh well, you know the the the, the sensei is on the on the shop floor, and basically you have to figure out what the <clears throat> means as opposed to <clears throat> means. You know, it's kind of a very cryptic. Uh, statements and uh, lots of uh, grunts and, and looks. And it, it, what I mean is that the, the, the whole um, onus for learning was on the learner. And, and uh, clearly the, um, the sensei tried to show things and we had to figure out what the hell he meant. And so, th so there was a lot of excitement. It, it had a very um, funny actually side effect. And, uh, and at the time, they learned a lot of things. Um, they were really discovering this whole thing, and uh, nobody could make head or tail of it. And my father, working with a McKinsey consultant, had a great idea. He said, why don't we uh, put this on a kind of a roadmap? You know, we're going to have topics, and we're going to have levels. And for each level, we're going to find one, one thing that they've got us to do. And then we go to Japan and see it all. And then at some point, we, we, we've got it all mapped out. You see where this is going. Yeah, <laughs> and it was fascinating to do because because it helped us to structure it all. But um, and I still have the folder with all these roadmaps. But in terms of the implementation, uh, some guys thought, "Oh, great! Now we can just take this to uh, people, and they will just do it." Mm -hmm. And it never worked. Yeah, of course it never worked. Why would it? And but 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 the consultants took it, run it away, and now we, and now I'm still, you know, back from visiting co companies and they have these roadmaps and these maturity models and these audits, and, and it's so weird because this is completely run amok. Mm -hmm. and, and in the original days, it, it, never, it never actually worked. Um, the entire focus of my dad as a, 
as a as a VP and then as a CEO of a, of, a, of an automotive company was the was teaching lean thinking to the site managers. I mean, it was a direct. It was really training his direct um, reports to see things in a certain way and uh, and to act on it. Yeah. And the whole there was never any notion that you should uh, apply this whole stuff. Well, yeah. actually, it's not exactly true. They did try, but it never worked. <laughs> yeah, because there, there's no easy cut and dry line or criteria or roadmap for, well, when can I call myself, quote unquote, a lean leader? When am I leading with respect? Am I now leading with 47% respect? And I can now try. Uh, yes yeah. and no. Yes and no. Do you know, Mark, the funny thing when, when, when you look at it, when hindsight is just that uh, um, Toyota is pretty, I think, is still pretty clear on what they are. It's pretty clear what they were doing, but but they're very alone and, and, and nobody realizes how different it is. So, so most of the things we see are kind of a compromise between what the company was doing before and these ideas. But, but the whole thing about lead respect, it's um, everybody is fascinated by the respect side. Uh, I tend to look more at the leadership side. So mm -hmm. the question is, in order to have stronger leadership, you also have to have, in a way, more, more, more devoted followers. Do you see what I mean? Well, I guess so is, is it fair to say, or I, I'd propose, let's see what you think, that, that those followers are choosing to follow somebody because they're a good leader, not because of their position, right? Yeah, they, yes, but they also have, it's more, it's like what the sense is. I mean, there's a difference. Uh, people talk resistance. I mean, nobody was, the, we had this at the beginning, the people who actually learn lean thinking were not resisting. They were actively trying to figure out what is, was being led in front of their eyes. Others would not try. And um, so, so, so the first thing about lead respect is what does it mean to have stronger leadership? And, and here, Toyota, uh, what we learn from, from Toyota and in Lean is completely different from the usual, which is defining leadership as improvement dimension, not like an objective you reach or a place to be. But to say, we, we don't know what the future is. We, we don't know where we're going. We, all of this is moving so fast. But we figured out that you know if we if we if we cut our accidents by half every year, if we cut our complaints by customer complaints by half every year, if we cut our inventory by let's say twenty percent every year by by increasing flexibility, this will take us to the right place. So and and it has to be very it's very clear and very crystal clear and strong leadership to say we're going to do it, and we and everything else can go. Mm -hmm. Now. This is a pretty scary thought. So people say, are, are you serious? Yes, we're serious. So the other part is the respect part is that people say, well, we, we can't do this. I mean, if we don't, we, we've done it a long time ago because we, we have all these difficulties, all these obstacles. And the trick here is really that rather than downplay it or shoot the messenger or do the usual things, we actually take these obstacles very seriously. Mm -hmm. we, li we listen until it hurts, even if it's unpleasant. And sometimes these obstacles, we, we know how to overcome them, but we have to realize the person is facing the obstacle. We're militant about not guilty, even when they're doing something wrong. And then the whole thing of respect is, is how them overcome these obstacles in order to follow the leadership. So, so it's really a yin-yang thing. You know, it's, it's, it, the respect side only makes sense in terms of the leadership side. Most people want to talk about respect and the, what, what does respect mean, but, but the, 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 the whole phrase is lead with respect. And, and respect is very important, clearly, but I'm more focused on the first on the leadership side. 
And leadership in lean is is different from what we usually mean because it's not it's not reaching a set objective. It's not fixed. Uh, the goalpost moves. Everything's changed. So we define leadership as improvement dimensions. Basically, the, the basic idea is say, hey, if you reduce your accidents every by half every every year, if you cut your customer complaints by half every year, if you reduce your inventory by twenty percent every year, it, uh, through increasing your flexibility, if you do these things. We don't exactly, and you change everything in the company to do these. We don't exactly know where we're going to be, but we know it's going to be a better place. We know we're, we're getting close to the market and customers. Okay. So, so leadership is really giving these dimension, and it's pretty tough. It's saying we're going to go there. Now, the other part of this is, of course, this, this can be pretty scary. I mean, this if it's to people, this is uh, if they knew how to do it, they would do it already. So, we have to bring them on board, and this is where the respect side comes in. Is we have to acknowledge that the obstacles they face are very real. And it's tempting when you're on the shop floor to, to downplay or to ignore or to give a, a you know, pithy answer or to shoot the messenger. But the point is, even if we've seen those very same obstacles resolve somewhere else, experience is not transferable. So we need to acknowledge that they're facing an, an obstacle in their shoes, the way they see it, and they're not guilty, even if they don't understand everything, they're absolutely not guilty. And the respect side is, is we're going to help them overcome these obstacles. And, and so, so lead with respect is really the two things. On the one side, we need the strong leadership, which in a way surfaces obstacles for people. Right. And on the other way, if we don't respect and we don't help people to overcome obstacles, we'll never lead either. Just, just see what I mean? It's not, it's not either or. It's, it's, it's a sort of yin-yang thing of both leading for strongly and taking better care of people. Yeah, because I'm curious to hear your thoughts about something I, I think people often misunderstand. And you talk about this and John Shook talks about it and Jim Womack talks about it. the idea of leading with respect or respect for people isn't about just wildly empowering, delegating, sort of saying, like, well, you're on your own, employees. You go figure it out. Um, I've I'm respecting you, so I'm going to let you do it. Like, you know, sometimes people, I think, have this mental model of somehow like a distant, disengaged leader who's telling people, well, here, just go problem solve, go figure it out. I'm going to stay out of your way. But what you're describing is something where, where the leader is still directly involved, but challenging people in a different way than they would in a traditional organization. Oh, oh absolutely. I mean, let's let's take um, any example you say you, you um, the leadership says, listen, I want to improve this dimension. Uh, for instance, I was on the, uh, on the Gimba in South Africa and, and they show you um, a factory and say, and there's an enormous warehouse and I'll say, okay, no more warehouse. I want, this is not cost cutting. This is cost reduction. I want to reduce my cost back. So I want to take away the warehouse of finished goods. So basically, here it is. Every finished good should leave from the production line from the factory every day to service customers. Oof. Oof. You know. Um, so how do we do it? So the next thing is we need to translate to people. Well, if we wanted to do this, what does it mean? Very practically, this means that we're gonna uh, need the flexibility to make everything exactly what the customer needs every day, which means uh, radically changing the changeovers and and the planning, all these things. Now, this is not easy. Now, there is a special unique trick to Lean, is that rather than explain this, 
we're going to put in some kind of a visual control tool. Kanban cards, trunk preparation areas, visual boards. So we're not going to explain this to people, but we're going to have them some way of seeing what we're trying to do in a very intuitive way with the visual control. And this is a unique thing in Lean. So you have the two, three elements, which is first we, four elements, which is first we, we should see the opportunity at the very business level and we lead that way. Second, we translate it into visual control. Third, this highlights obstacles and skill gaps. So we train the people. And as people are better trained, then they come up with all these process improvement ideas that we say, okay, go for it, in order to realize the dimension we were leading it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So it, it really is a, a system that it's not leader leading on one side and executing on the other side, not at all. It's blending, it, it's teamwork. It's, you know, they learn to do some very specific thing. You learn more about what you want to do and vice versa. It's kind of a, there was this great African proverb, which um, which they told me in Africa, it's probably not African, but it said basically, <laughs> if you don't want to go fast, you go alone. If you want to go far, you go together. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is the, the core idea here. So leadership is strong because it, it takes very tough challenges, but is also very understanding that for people to, 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 to follow there, you need to help them and support them in, in developing the skills so that they overcome the obstacles. So you want to go and discover the sources of the Nile, you don't have a very, very precise plan. You, you just know it's, it's somewhere east. So you start and you discover. And an interesting, uh, an interesting story about this, discovering the source of the Nile is, is uh, the guys who, who actually did it, uh, rather than going with an army, they wanted very, very few people. And it turned out that in their discovery journey, they would not fight the tribes because they would actually be welcomed by the local traditions and they would avoid dangerous tribes and so forth. Do you see what I mean? It's exploratory. Yeah. It's very strong leadership. It's more respectful. And they got there. Whereas that whenever you want, you go with an invading army, you immediately create resistance and people will fight back. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds, it sounds like this is a different model than kind of the, the old um, approach of the manager tells people what to do, here's the order, and the people just go execute. That this is a far more um, collaborative process of discovery. The leaders are the leaders. They know what direction we need to be going, or here's the most important things we need to be working on, but then we'll go and explore together. Is that a fair way of paraphrasing back? Or Leadership learns two things. The leadership learns to express itself in terms of improvement and not in terms of targets to be reached. That's, that's a very clear difference. Secondly, leadership doesn't say, well, listen, I don't care how you reach the numbers, make the numbers, it's your, you know, you, we never hear this kind of, a, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. What we're really seeing is that leadership commits to listening and to creating the right conditions for people to actually, actually be able to reach those improvement targets. Mm. So, and, and I think, you know, in, through your books, um, you're, you're trying to bring these, these lessons out through, through stories. As a, so I guess the reader perhaps is discovering uh, with you and with your father, Freddie, who, you know, is a co-author on the books. Um, but, you know, the gold mine, the lean manager, lead with respect. Can you, can you talk a little bit about kind of like, you know, the high level story arc and 
you know, what, what is accomplished through the use of, um, you know, nonfiction or of fiction, I'm sorry, of writing a business novel, what, what's accomplished? Yeah, I know, I know, I know business novels are a favorite of yours and you really like the style. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a big fiction reader, so it's not meant to be a criticism of you or any other business <laughs> That's uh, fine. That's fine. novel writer, but. Well, there, there's two things to it. First, first, the arc of the story is always the same. Is how do you convey to, three things to it? How do you convey the fact that you, you have a business problem, you, ident you find the problem, you identify it, you show that people have to face the problem, they solve it, and as they solve it, they discover the next step. So that, that, that is always, always the arc. And the thing is, there are lots of tools and techniques in Lean to do so. So basically, they face their business problem, they find the right tool, the tool shows them not to fix it, but to understand what the problem is. Mm -hmm. People being smarter than fix it, and then they discover the next order of problem. So that is always the arc of the stories and the stories within the stories. There are two reasons, basically, uh, why why we write novels. Is actually the first one is completely accidental. We we wanted to write a manual, and every time I came up with a draft for my for my dad, he was just bored. I said, "Yeah, if you want, but it's just bored." <laughs> and the other thing is, he always caught on the on the fact that it's a system. He said, "Well." You're putting this in a very linear way, but it never works like this. You have to, to juggle all these balls in the air all the time. So this is how we ended up um, writing the novels because, because it's less boring and because it's not linear. You can have conversations where people echo on different things so we can show the systemic aspect. Now, what happened as a bonus is that we realized that as we wrote the novels, we could start to convey the feel of of the of lean thinking, the feel of facing problems, of struggling, the feel of sometimes uh, finding somebody who just jumps at it and it's fine, but sometimes hitting somebody who just doesn't want to hear about it and you struggle. You know, there's a very very specific feel about it, and through the three novels, the Gong Mind, the Lean Manager, and the Lead with Respect, it was increasingly fun to try to share and convey that that feeling of doing lean on the game. Yeah. And it is, is that style that, that comes across through the storytelling, does that kind of represent the style of, of how your father learned of what you saw, that, that process of discovery um, as the, the Toyota senseis or, or, or others guided you through this process? Yeah, well, there, there's something really specific about it. It's really difficult to grasp about this. And this is, um, I, I have a different point of view with many of my lean colleagues here is my experience here is that in, in, in the, the old style TPS, the only point where the rubber meets the road is when the operator actually touched the part. So of course, when, when you build parts or you do a service or you do any activity, you, you will have some generic problems. You know, if, if I'm an author, I have a number of generic problems. I have to have a good argument I have to write clear paragraph. I have to write simple sentences, and I have to pick the right and short words. Do you see what I mean? These are general problems. Yeah. But but then, um, according to every different kind of situation, there will be very specific solutions. Do you see what I mean? According to context, according to audience, according to format. Is it a blog? Is it a book? Is it a whatever poetry? Yeah. Uh, Every specific situation will have specific solutions. Now, this is an interesting thing that the Japanese senses were only interested in 
you know, in looking at the very specific solutions. Now, what happened is that when we were learning, like anybody does, like any normal mind does, we were always looking for general principles, generalities, you know, um, overall things. And the, the, the senses actually encouraged but never responded. And it took me a long time to realize that in this whole thing, whatever general generality you come you come forward is on your head. It's your responsibility. They will not commit. They will not say yes or no. Mm. It's part of your learning process. But this is not where the rubber meets the road. This is not that important. It doesn't have that much meaning. So it's really a very, very um, applied kind of knowledge. And I think this is what we find it very difficult to convey because people want, in, in the West, people want to have these general principles which they translate in specific instances. And here we're building knowledge from the other way around. This is why only, you have to be a very experienced and respected census to actually express your uh, principle. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, because, I mean, does, does this come back? You, you used an interesting phrase earlier I wanted to ask you more about when you talked about, uh, you said uh, experience is not transferable. Is that sort of what you're saying yes. here that you can't say well here's what i did before therefore you should do this but you're teaching yes. you're you're helping them develop knowledge instead right yes and, and specific knowledge so so if you the, the, if you have a technical problem to solve i have many i mean most of my work is is actually in engineering now and you say okay like guys uh we want seven theories about everything at least and out of these seven things only you know sometimes they're just still nothing works so seven more you know and eventually they find something else. Sometimes you know beforehand or you have some idea beforehand of which is likely to work or not. But they need to go through them all. If they thought of them in their minds, they need to go through them all because the knowledge of what didn't work and what worked is as important because we're building this mental map. Yeah, and, and I'm sure you probably get similar requests or sometimes there's the questions um, that, that are shared and answered through the Lean Edge website that that you um, organize and get people um, to, to participate in. Sometimes the questions are very, um, very much along the lines of, you know, here's a specific situation you should, I want you to tell me what to do. And those are very difficult to answer, right? Um, yeah, well, no, they're very easy to answer. The answer is it depends. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, yeah. That is, um, the good, that is the right answer, I think, but people find that unsatisfying somehow. <laughs> Well, yeah, um, I think that I think that a lot of skill in lean is involved in problem finding, and in again, where does the rubber meet the road? Uh, visual control. Yeah. How do we translate a general problem in a visual control lines on the ground, um, Kanban cards? Um, I use a lot of Kanban in engineering, for instance, and. Um, and and this, which is kind of strange and surprising, is this whole visual control skill has not been as studied and developed as it should have in 20 years of Lean. So there's been a lot of ink spent on, on principles and values, and really all this stuff is, uh, is nothing more than what we already had in the, in the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, the very specifics of Lean around visual control and skill development, we, we largely miss again. Um, Je Jeff was really, Jeff, like it's probably the guys who said best, he wrote this uh, Toyota talent book that, that is hard to grasp, but it's just spot on. Uh, the fact that at the end of the day, 
process improvement is a result of first skill improvement. Mm -hmm. If not, you improve the process, but people can cope with it. And we have so many examples of people copying Toyota, mm -hmm. and then it just simply doesn't work. Right. So let's let's talk about the most recent book here, Lead with Respect. You know, without giving away the whole story. Of course, we want we want people to to open the cover and read and and, and get into the book. But um, can you talk a little bit about the high level story? Um, of the book, there, there's a CEO from a software company involved, as opposed to this being just a factory floor story or a manufacturing office story, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll leave the, the the surprise of the book, but I'll just say this: I, I was in uh, I, I was in uh, three years ago, I think, or four years ago, I was in South Africa in a game reserve, uh, you know, where where your 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 soul just expands. You know, it's so beautiful. This is. We're all scatterlings of Africa, you know, we all came from there. With my friend Peter, who'd worked for uh, 14 years, I think, at Toyota, and, and, and his mate, who also worked for many years at Toyota, and, and they remember the time where the sensei uh, just came from Japan and looked around, turned to the manager and says, the problem is you. <laughs> and the guy said, what? <laughs> the work is like, yeah, I'm in Africa, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, there's uh, paper flying all over the, the the company, and and the and and you say because there's so much wind, and the sensor says uh, wind don't make paper, and uh, the problem is you, you 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 have to you and and they and they just say forget it, kick him out of the there, and then years later this, they come back and say well actually okay, what do you mean the problem is <laughs> me. And uh, that was a starting point of the discussion, and we were discussing all these African things like Ubuntu, you know, you know, individual success and community success and all these things. And now he's uh, dealing with one of his suppliers, which is a IT software company. And um, I wrote the preface in French for the Lean, Eric Ries Lean startup, and I work with a lot of uh, in French. We, you know, we set up the Lean IT summits, and I work with a lot of guys who are really uh, very deeply into Lean IT. So I thought this would be fun, and and the, the very starting point of the of the of the book is Jane Delaney, the sensei, the sorry, the CEO of this IT company, hearing from her main client, the problem is you, <laughs> and she doesn't take it very well, but uh, she's a smart lady, and 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 then she started working through, and 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 it's all about how on one hand Andy Ward from the lead manager now learns to coach. And he struggles because it's one thing of doing it. It's another thing of coaching somebody else to do it. Yeah. And how Jane Delaney learns to learn lean thinking in an environment that has nothing to do with production. So Andy will always take her back to production and, and she says, well, what am I doing here? I mean, my, my guys write code. And it's interesting to see how she interprets what she sees on the production floor right. in terms of code and IT and software and systems. It's fun. Yeah, and you talk about translating into different areas. I, I know you've published a, a journal article about lean in a, in a French hospital, and that you had some some early involvement. Can you tell? Do you have any stories about that translation of trying to make this relevant uh, w within a healthcare setting, and some of the things you saw, some of the things you learned? Well, to be honest, I think I think the one big misunderstanding or misconception is this whole thing of lean implementation. Mm -hmm. I, I've never seen anything, I don't know what lean implementation means. Uh, what, what it is, you, talk, you, you teach lean thinking. Right. So you teach lean thinking in a, in a hospital, that's, that's not that hard. It's like, um, 
um, you know, what do you do to patients? Again, where the, the rubber, you, you see the place where the rubber meets the road, which is when the nurse or the doctor um, touch the patient. Now, of course, it's very, because of the institutional story of the hospital, it's very hard to get there. So you need to develop people's confidence in solving problems. So typically in a, in a hospital, I would start with a very simple problem, which is uh, can we make the difference between a corridor and the storage area? So why do we have beds and things in the corridor? Mm -hmm. And a very obvious thing in a hospital is can we distinguish a clean and, and dirty circuit? These are problems they acknowledge they, they should solve. So you get them to solve these problems. Then you get them to solve one more problem, like how do you know things are clean? And the only way you know things are clean in the hospital is because there's nothing on it. So it has this is the only visual way, again, visual control. Mm -hmm. So you progress until you get to a point when you ask a team, say, listen, let's take the simplest nursing care that you do. Can you guys please write your own checklist about how you're supposed to do it? And can you ask the, the ward manager to observe 20 cases of patients and discuss what you see? And there you're close to the patient finally. Now, as they, some things they do easily, some things they do hard. Again, these are identified as problems, and the team will start working on them. Yeah. And and uh, I think I, I think I published. I think it was in French, but I think I had the first A3 published. Uh, it must have been what 20 years ago now in a hospital in Martinique. You know, so it, it's not so hard. The the whole point is is not to go there with this notion that you're going to implement lean. But with this notion that you're going to teach lean thinking to people. Yeah, I mean, you know, this whole this word implement maybe applies better to software, where that that's a project where you know traditional big company enterprise software you have this software implementation, and 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 at some point the project is done, and people are left with software that they continue to use and business processes that work with that software, and 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 that that's a clumsy use of the word implementation to describe something like lean where we're continuing to learn we're continuing to improve where we're continuing yeah. to get better there, there, there's really no done point yeah and, and, and jim and dan actually called it lean thinking uh, and i think they were it, it was very insightful of them it's really lean thinking it's a way of looking at situations in a lean way for instance uh one of my favorite is tag time i mean i i look I always start with tact time, even if it's a very rough and ready and, 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 and very vague, but what is the notion of tact time? At the moment you have tact time, suddenly you see the entire situation completely differently. And, and it's interesting how even with very experienced lean coaches and so forth, I ask them, okay, what's the tact time? And they just look at me and blink and right. they hadn't thought of it. Um, so, so really it's about how do, you, how do you learn a certain number of mental mechanisms that will make you see the situation completely differently. Yeah, think, I mean, with tact time, thinking about the actual rate of patient demand, customer demand, where I think a lot of hospitals, you know, it's, focus on, uh, we'll say, well, you know, we're all working really hard and we're seeing everybody as fast as we can. What more do you want? But that's different than a process that's designed to well, actually well, keep up with that. It's very simple. Right? Well, yeah. For instance, in a hospital, if you look at tact time, you realize that by and large, um, you have a certain number of patients that should leave the ward every day. And, and then, okay, so you ask people, say, let's do a visual control. Let's have a plan. Who should leave the ward today? 
And then uh, very quickly, we see that although we're, it's a, we, we struggle so much with emergency wards and uh, pushing patients into the hospital, mm -hmm. nobody takes care of the outpatients very much. Now, uh, what, the moment you do this, you realize that uh, uh, there's, there's a number of things happen. There's two reasons patients don't leave the wards when they should. First, because some things that, okay, three reasons. Sometimes it's true that condition is more complex than was thought. But that's not so frequent. What is very frequent is that um, some exam or something that should have been done to the patient wasn't done on time. So we're still waiting. Mm -hmm. And some people don't know where to go after the hospital. There's nothing ready for the next structure to take care of them. So, so the moment you have a tech time thinking, you say, wow, um, you know, every day, you know, so many patients should leave the ward and that's the tech time. It, we're not going to force it, of course, but it shows you immediately that something is not right in the process. Yeah. What, um, as, as we wrap up here, um, we had one, one question that, that came in uh, from Twitter. I, I think maybe it's a good way to wrap up when you talk about this, you know, these themes of continually learning and continually improving. Uh, what, what's the best lesson that you've learned in, in the past year about lean, Toyota, life? Uh, what's something that stands out to you? Um, well, one absolute breakthrough moment is uh, the Nobel Prize economist Joseph Stiglitz mm -hmm. came up with a book called uh, Creating a Learning Society, and with a, which is a lot based on just-in-time. He, he, I, I don't know the guy, but he definitely saw something. And one thing he saw is something that we've been saying more or less intuitively all along, which is that lean is about dynamic gains, not static efficiencies. I mean, I think this is a radical vision. And this, and I'm working on a paper with Dan Jones and Jacques Chez, and that's going to be published very soon, where we finally define, uh, John Shook had this great idea that about lean as learning to learn. But then when you say that, it's a bit mysterious formula, and we're not too sure what it means. So we really worked on this for a year. And what we're now quite clear is that there, there are three cases. that people who have nothing to learn. So they treat everything as an investment. For instance, I don't have anything to learn by my printer. It's not a big deal. But when my printer needs dummies that I need to, I don't know, change the heads, I, I tend to change the printer. It's not smart, but it's not an investment. It's just a cost. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. If you have nothing to learn, you will replace the broken part. You treat everything as an investment. A lot of people, particularly in the in the continuous improvement field, feel they have something to learn and they already know what. So we have all these big catch-up programs. You know, they've, they've, they've defined what to learn, they've defined best practice, and anyone who's not best practice, you have to catch up. <laughs> So these are the majority of the lean programs are catch-up programs. So they have these low-hanging fruits, and then they run it. You know, the the, the kill gets into the mud, and you, you suddenly they stop because because you finish the catch-up. Actually, that's it. There's nothing left to squeeze. Learning to learn is about cons constantly in a fast-moving world where external change is faster than internal change. Asking yourself whether you're learning the right things. Hmm. And learning to learn is the ability to distinguish what you should learn and what you, the fires you should let burn because it, they don't matter that much. Huh. So, so I think that we, we, one thing we've really learned with Dan this year is, is to define this, what learning to learn actually means in practice. Um, a, sec a second point, sorry, uh, just a second point I want to say that it's sure. not just this year, but it's very, very hard to learn is 
is the is common trust, is confidence, is developing confidence. We tend to, you know, we tend to write read things from left to left to right. So it's all about my definition of uh, of lean would be making better products through making better people. Mm-hmm. But but we we part of this is better products with better process and more skilled people with more self confidence. But we can we can work at the other way around. How do we develop self confidence? And I struggle with this. Our culture is not very conductive to this. And this whole thing, it, it's all very well to have very sharp minds, but where are the warm hearts? And I think that to conclude on respect, the the original definition I was taught from the Toyota way of respect is really to, at the beginning, to, to, to put yourself in their shoes and see through their eyes and make the greatest effort to understand what, they're say, what the other side is saying, what, what the other person is saying. Understanding doesn't mean agreeing, mm-hmm. but but how much of an effort do we actually make to understand each other? And I think that this is really the the starting point of respect. And this is not a new learning from from this year, but it's been through throughout this writing this book and living in on the on the shop floor on the gimba. And it, it's actually hard. It, it's actually not not obvious at all. To the knee-jerk reaction is really to push it back, push it back. You know, it's your fault, or it's not important, or you screwed up. And 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 how do we learn to actually listen and see again what I was saying? See the barrier, the obstacle, the impossibility the person has in front of them, and help them through it. I think on that note, let's. Uh, I think we'll we'll have to uh, wrap up. Um, I think your books will will help people through that that learning process and and i know these books are are well read and and well beloved out there so um if, if well, somebody, I hope so <laughs> yeah and if, if somebody's listening who is not familiar with the books I, I hope they'll go check out the series especially if you are uh an avid fan of fiction which again i just i tend not to be so that was <laughs> it's my only that's my problem not michael's and uh certainly not the audience's so um Michael, I want to thank you for uh, taking time to talk to us uh, today, this evening, uh, for you in France. Uh, people can find you online at michaelballet.org. Um, what, any yes, other ways probably, they can contact you? Uh, yes, that's very easy to contact me. And uh, and also, I, I write a weekly um, Gemba Coach column on, um, on org. Where, where, again, the challenge is back to this rubber meets the road thing, which is, how do we keep lean specific? How do we keep lean thinking about very specific situations? And and um, and, and so people send me questions. I try to answer them, and that's really interesting. It certainly certainly keeps me thinking. And um, so so that's the game by Coach Colin on lean.org. And you're, you've been very active on on Twitter now and the leanedge.org. And so, like you said, it's it's pretty easy for people to find you online. So again, our guest has been Michael Ballet, uh, most recently um, co-author of uh, the book Lead with Respect, available now through the Lean Enterprise Institute. So Michael, I want to thank you for uh, chatting with us today. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.